the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. There once was a king who announced a painting contest in his kingdom. He was building a new castle, and he wanted a wonderful piece of art, a huge piece of art, to adorn his main entrance. So the word went out to all among his kingdom, and in addition to the fact that their work of art would be prominently hung, there was a large cash prize, of course, for the winner. So in the ensuing months, tons of paintings poured in to his midst, and at the end of that time, he kind of narrowed it down to two. He displayed them prominently for everyone to see. The theme for the contest was one of peace. He saw himself as a peaceful king and felt that he had a peaceful kingdom. And so the theme was depicted in many different ways. But the two finalists were quite different. On one hand stood this beautiful lake, so tranquil that it reflected the beauty of the mountains behind it. Above it stood the calm skies with lush, puffy clouds, and down below burst forth flowers all around the lake, and off in the distance was a little family of deer that grazed peacefully out in the meadow. The other was also of a mountain, but a rocky, craggy mountain, out of which uh, sprung the gnarled roots of trees that clung to life on the harsh side of this cliff, over which poured this um, tumultuous waterfall that crashed down on the rocks below, and the sky above was ominous as lightning flashed off in the distance. And yet, even in the midst of it, off in the far corner stood one lone bush upon which sat a mother bird on her nest. Very different, and much to the surprise of everyone in the kingdom, the king chose the latter image over the former. Many were upset and asked him why. Why in the world would he have chosen that to adorn his grand entryway? And he said, peace is not the absence of conflict, but rather in the midst of it, having love in one's heart in the midst of the turmoil that sustains them in the face of such conflicts and tumult. And that was the reason for which he chose that image. Today, as we stand on the last week leading up to the annual reminder that the Prince of Peace steps into our world for our sake, I'd like for us to dwell, I know I'm a little out of order on themes this week, but if the love of God brings peace to us, we'll connect it, right? Um, we'll reflect on this image of peace for just a moment. Um, I think it's fitting. This time of year, we look for peace, we dwell on peace, we want peace on earth and goodwill towards men, which is often lifted out of context um, as kind of a, an image for the world around us. But as is the reminder in the pages of Scripture today, peace, of course, is not the absence, but rather the presence of the Prince of Peace in the midst of those conflicts and tumults and turmoils. Um, there's nothing we can buy that we know this time of year that can bring us peace. There's no leader we can elect or that could take office that could bring lasting peace. There's no empire or country that has lasted down through the ages as a symbol of peace. It's only when God himself brings peace that we find 
it even in the midst of life. So I'd like for us to dwell back on this image, this, this person, the presence of peace, if you will, as we look back at this reading from Matthew that we've just heard um, and reflect on it and three lessons that perhaps emerge to assist us toward that end this morning. As we open to it, um, remember Matthew's purpose uh, in theme of, of writing his entire gospel, right, is to connect for his readers and predominantly for his Jewish readers that the one he presents therein, namely Jesus, is the Messiah. He connects all the dots from every prophecy, um, everything foretold, foretold, the whole family tree, all the begats that open Matthew right are toward the end that everyone sees this is the one for whom they wait. And so with that, um, blissfully, Father Greg did not have to read all the begats. We pick up on the backside of that in verse 18 with Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus. Interestingly, this year, as it falls in the lectionary, we get, we get a glimpse, right? Um, Matthew, because of the lineage he's trying to establish, shows us the birth of Jesus predominantly through the lens of Joseph, whereas on Christmas Eve, traditionally, we always read from Luke 2, where we capture that from Mary's vantage point. So it's wonderful that we have both of these before us this year to reflect upon. And so in verse 18, um, he jumps right in about how the birth of Jesus took place in this way, that when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, um, for our purposes, betrothals in uh, those days were akin to civil marriages in our own. Um, it was a formal contract. Um, it was signed. It was witnessed. It was seen as a, a formal standing thing in society. And thus, the only way a betrothal even could be broken is through a formal act of divorce. And that's helpful for us because um, when we think about this, this, this puts Joseph in a dilemma. I think we often miss the weight, the true gravitas of the leading up of the angelic presence of Gabriel who visits Joseph in the verses to follow. When we think about it, the Holy Spirit has already come and overshadowed uh, Mary. Um, she has now been at least at three months with child. During that time, she's been with her cousin Elizabeth, and as she comes back, with it comes the dilemma of what Joseph will do. Um, this is no small thing in those days. Um, you add to the suspicion and the rumors that are swirling about, of course, that in her absence, what had happened and what was going on while she went to visit her relatives in another area. And now that she's back, um, Joseph has a decision to make. It's, it's quite a dilemma because not only, according to the law, um, is he able to divorce her, but as a just and righteous man under the law, the full extent of the law actually required that he wouldn't just divorce her, but he'd put her to death death by stoning in a public forum. Um, it, was, it was a heinous thing. Marriage was held in high regard. And thus, um, even the breaking of that relationship, even in betrothal, was, was a weighty issue. So Joseph is faced uh, with a dilemma, to say the least. He's wrestling down what to do. And being a just and righteous man, as we read, um, he doesn't want to enter into shame, nor does he want to bring shame and certainly death for Mary. And thus, the only solution that he can resolve 
that, that is this razor edge that he can walk, as if he divorces her quietly in hopes that no one will make anything of it. It's certainly not the ideal situation that he hopes it would be. And I think that's helpful for us, really, because in many ways, perhaps the, the first thing for us to reflect on about um, this week out from the presence of peace, the person of peace, the prince of peace, who enters into our midst, is this reminder that the prince of peace, Jesus, enters into the dilemmas of life. It's not um, that he steps in to dispel the dilemmas of life, um, but rather he overshadows them as he steps into them. And we think about that. We, we know this, but it, it takes a, a different perspective to truly embrace that. When we have the crossroad moments, when we have decisions to make, it's not there that, that, that God dispels those decisions, but he steps into them. Um, it's not in the midst of uh, strife and even broken relationships that he steps in to just immediately wipe it out, but he steps in to the midst of those dilemmas and meets us there in health challenges and in, in, in grief in all the many places we can identify um, the, 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 the weight of that word dilemma, which almost seems short of those circumstances in many ways. It's there that the presence of peace, the Prince of Peace, steps in. And acknowledging that helps us have a frame in which we take the next step. Where do we go in the midst of those things? What do we do as he enters into those moments with us? Well, as we turn back to our text, um, we catch perhaps a second lesson, a, uh, something that assists us towards that end. In verse 20 and following, we, we see that in the midst of this, as Joseph is considering these things, the angel Gabriel appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Probably the understatement of Matthew's text, as he considered these things, as he wrestled those things down, as, as the day led to a sleepless night, as he's restless, he's awakened or stirred perhaps in his fatigue by this dream as the angel of the Lord appears to him. Matthew, for our sake, connects Joseph as the son of David, once more always pointing to his lineage before reminding us of this command, really, that he's not to fear taking Mary as his wife, for what she has bearing within her is from the Lord, and the rest is unfolded for our sake. It's into the dilemma that the very Spirit of God, the messenger of God in this case, steps to bring um, not just uh, clarity, but direction, direction as to what Joseph should do. Joseph, being a righteous and just man, likely is not just making pros and cons lists, but really has been wrestling this out in prayer with the Lord. And at this time, the direction that he seeks comes, and comes quite miraculously, in fact, that will give him clarity as to what he should do. And I think that is, is a helpful frame for us to remember as well, that um, in the midst of uh, the dilemmas comes the direction 
but only when we bring ourselves into the presence of the Prince of Peace to work those things out. And the direction we'd often think, we'd hope, would always be as crystal clear as this. Well, yeah, I mean, if I had an angelic appearance, I'm sure I would do exactly what was told, right? I mean, we, we kind of have that in our minds, but we do have direction. We have that in the pages of Scripture. We've, we've been given direction in the council of the church and, and those around us in the body of Christ. We, we get that in prayer. We are no less um, equipped in the midst of the dilemmas to find the direction that we need. And the direction, uh, again, may not always be what we anticipate it to be. Um, it can be different than we think. Sometimes it doesn't lift grief immediately, but it's a comfort and a solace as we work out our grief before the Lord. Um, sometimes, as I love that our prayer book has this captured in the very far back of prayers, God doesn't always heal an illness, but he might sanctify an illness for the purposes that he brings forth something in us as we work that out that may not have ever been discovered as we walk with him. We don't always understand the fullness of the direction. It doesn't just mean in a hallmark way the dilemma is wrapped up in 90 minutes and then we go on with life. But rather he walks with us in the midst of that, giving us direction as we seek his face, even in spite of those things. And he is always faithful to direct our steps and come alongside us as he does so. And thus, um, in, in a final piece, pun intended, I suppose, um, we get this last little bit in verse 22 and following. Matthew, of course, for our benefit, leaves us with this connection that we read from Isaiah so that we can't miss um, the connection from that which is born to the angel Gabriel to Joseph. We are reminded, of course, that this person, this presence is God with us at the end of verse 23, parenthetically. And then we read that Joseph woke from his sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had born, had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I think it's helpful for us to recognize that this command is one that Joseph had to decide to actually carry out. He awakes from this dream, and he fulfills the command down to the letter of the law. He doesn't fear to take Mary from betrothal into marriage. And not only does he not fear that, but then he abstains until Jesus is born in fulfillment of that prophecy um, toward that end as well. And he names Jesus um, Jesus and not giving him any other family name. Every single detail, he's obedient in deciding to carry out. And I think that um, is a helpful thing for us to, to dwell on in conclusion here. That in the face of dilemmas, in the face of the direction we receive, that we always are faced with a decision about what we'll do with that. Now, we often think that's a, that's a really small step. Well, if I have direction, I'll move right to the decision. And so, hopefully, we should. But um, if that were true, the church and the world would be a very different place if with haste we moved from the direction to the decision. If haste we, we spent time in the direction God's given us in the pages of Scripture, in His commands and His instructions for us, and it always moved us to do what that said. It would be a very different place. So we shouldn't be too quick to think, well, of course. I mean, if we go from an angelic presence, He's going to do what they have commanded Him to say. But it does require 
some joining of our will from that part. Just as it does with Mary, so it does with Joseph, so it does with the saints down the ages. And that's not an easy thing. In fact, it's a weighty thing if we really spend time reflecting on it. One of my greatest heroes in the faith um, kind of captures this, and I'm going to leave you with this quote in just a moment. Put it up here before you. It comes from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, Bonhoeffer, as you know, um, lived as a Christian theologian and pastor in Nazi Germany under that regime um, and, and faithfully carried out his vocation and calling even in the midst of it. To say he lived in the midst of a dilemma would be the greatest understatement of the century. And he writes this actually about peace, which is something that, that kind of will leave you stirring, I imagine, for the days to come, I hope. He writes, peace is the opposite of security. Peace is the opposite of security. Think about that. Bonhoeffer knew if he wanted security, the best thing he could have done is kept his head down. The best thing he could have done is not continued to teach against the regime that was in exact opposition to the gospel that he held with every fiber of his being. Um, the best thing he could have done was quietly pastored those people underground around him and just kind of go along to get along so that we don't rock the boat too much and this too shall pass. The church has always made her way through these things. That would have been the secure thing to do. No, um, Bonhoeffer took the, the, the courageous route, which is interestingly the peaceful route. He, he clung to the Prince of Peace, continued to proclaim and walk out the gospel even in the face of certain death, and even um, to the extent that he continued to bring peace to those in prison who were around him, even to the awe and amazement of the guards and others who held him under their care. Bonhoeffer and so many down through the ages understood that peace is not security. That's not what we're offered. Rather, we're offered the Prince of Peace who walks with us and does secure us for all eternity. But there is no promise that it brings kind of a, a calm life right now in the midst of it. And thus, we're called to do the same. We're called to reflect upon the times that we have the dilemmas either of our own choosing or those that are fashioned on top of us for such a time as this, as for Bonhoeffer, that in the face of those that we get direction from God's word and counsel um, as we seek his face, and then we too are faced with the decision, what will we do? And if we choose to embrace the Prince of Peace, the person of peace, Jesus himself, it's quite often the opposite of what the world pursues in its ways of security. But that is the way of life, and that is the way that we secure eternal life as we are faithful to him even unto the end. And so this week, as we have this image rattling around around us, rattling around in our minds. We're reflecting on things that bring peace, and, and even as we're reflecting on being at peace and kind of um, being of good cheer with others, um, we're reminded that that can only come when the Prince of Peace steps into our lives and we bring him into the lives of those around us. It's there and there alone that peace is found, and it's there and there alone that peace will carry us to security where we're in his gracious presence forevermore. So we ask God's grace, not only in this week as we wrap up Advent, but every day to continue to embrace the Prince of Peace in the midst of the dilemmas, in the midst of the direction, and then with courageous will to decide to embrace him each and every step.
until we find security in the presence of the Prince of Peace forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.